Broadsheet Radio Network. It's a new episode and a new season of Shared History. I'm just a bill, just a poor little bill, but I know I'll be a lost someday. Might just end up right on Shared History. That was absolutely stunning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's just a little tease for, uh, for our episode topics. I have been looking forward to recording with you and your beautiful face and voice all goddamn day. You know, it's been, we've been take, we've taken a break, not the Ross and Rachel kind, just time, just life, life happened. So here's the thing, listeners, um, Cass has been like really busy making like bold life choices, <laughs> making money moves, uh, applying to go back to school to becoming an educator so during this break i just wanted on the record that Cass has been getting shit done making just like self-discoveries i have just been um further dismantling my home and i thought you were gonna say the patriarchy (laughs) my own home she's named her house the patriarchy and i've been tearing it down (laughs) Yeah, last season, the basement of my home was just dirt. And now, you know, that that blight has just spread. And now I, like, don't have walls uh, throughout the whole house. So it's, I said to Justin earlier today, it's it's really hard to set boundaries when you don't have any wall. <laughs> God damn it, Natalie. <laughs> I've literally been living, we've been living in our office, which means I've been living in our podcasting space just on the other side of the wall from our little pod room, and yet we haven't been recording. I forget sometimes that you're still in the midst of construction because I'm in Des Moines, and then I'll see a a snap or something, and I'm like, oh, fuck, Natalie's still living in a a house tent. It's fine. I'm fine. I've been sleeping on an air mattress for, I think we're on six weeks. I thought you were going to say two years. <laughs> 90 years. My back is broken. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. It's uh, We should reintroduce ourselves. It's me, Cass, resident gay woman and second-class citizen. And me, Natalie, second-class citizen, also woman. <laughs> so uh, we may seem a little, little spicy, a little fired up right now. At the time of recording... I hope, I hope that that this, our anger, is irrelevant at the time of episode release. What a joy. Uh, mm, my eggs in that basket. I'm not careful, careful, because it could be irrelevant because... We're not allowed to have a podcast anymore because we're women? Yeah, yeah. It could be, like, in a good way or it could be in a really bad way. So let's specify. <laughs> at time of recording, it's been... <laughs> One week since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. 
Which sounds ridiculous. Sounds asinine coming out of my mouth hole. <sighs> so we're angry. Our uteri are angry. I'll say that uh, we're back and bitter than ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that may have to be the episode title. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> Cass and I didn't discuss. We did. We we both know what largely what each other is going to talk about for the first time in probably ever, and but we didn't talk about the order that we're going to go in because yeah. we and we can't do like an easy peasy chronological situation. No, they're kind of in tandem in not uh, just yeah. amorphous beings. They're like perpetual and also. I've got a good one. Um. As podcasting is a visual medium, dear readers, first one to touch your nose goes. You go for it, Natalie. Okay. I get to, at least I get to start my topic with talking about something that I love, um, which is a book that I'm currently reading. I just want to tell you guys about all the books. I highly recommend this book. I waited, I had to hold on it at the library for like seven weeks possibly more before it finally came in. So I know that a lot of you guys are probably already reading it. And that is the book, In Defense of Witches, The Legacy of Witch Hunts and Why Women Are Still on Trial by Mona Chollet? 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 I don't, I didn't look up how to pronounce it because I'm too angry at everything else. <laughs> and so this book is about like witch hunts and whatnot, but it's more importantly about just like women's rights and the attack upon them systemically throughout all of time. And I am upset that I'm not further in the book because I'm pretty sure that a lot of the second part of the, of the book is based on the intro is going to be about reproductive rights and reproductive health. And I have come to talk to you about just, you know, abortion in America and abortion rights in America. Very narrow niche topic very specific uh i don't even know how i'm gonna fill my time <laughs> so little to discuss but there's um there i just have a couple i have a quote from this book that i want to read because i it's a longer quote but i thought it was really interesting and it basically connects the attack on reproductive health and reproductive rights um the attack on people with uteruses all the way back to the witch hunts. And it's, and this is the quote, it says, over the same period as the witch hunts, we also see the criminalization of contraception and abortion. In France, a law issued in 1556 obliged all pregnant women to declare their pregnancy and to ensure witness at the birth. Infanticide in France became a crime, crime exceptum, which means it was an exceptional crime that was not subject to regular judicial procedures or, or standards of proof. A status that even witchcraft was not accorded there. So basically, when we started seeing the criminalization of abortion, which in France was, actually, was earlier, like 1556 was pretty early to have a law in the books about this, that you didn't need proof. You didn't need, like somebody could just point and say she had an abortion basically. And if you had legally told and disclosed your pregnancy and didn't have a witness at the birth, you could just be tried and accused and the end, which even witch hunts had trials. They were 
full of misogyny and chaos and just nonsense, but you still had to try and quote unquote prove that somebody was a witch. And I just feel like that sets up my topic really well. Also, just it's a good book. Go read it. Also, thank you for <clears throat> saying people with uteruses and not just women, because there are a whole slew of people who have uteruses who are not women. Yeah. So I'm going to start in kind of present day and then we're going to immediately go back because in his draft opinion, Justice Alito drew on the work of certain historians and concluded that the right to abortion wasn't rooted in the country's, quote, history or tradition. That was a huge, a huge qualifier to his opinion is that there, oh, the country doesn't the, like this wasn't part of America. We've always been anti this like abortion isn't part of uh, it's not a basic American human right because it's just not part of like the tapestry of our past, which is you guessed it. Bullshit. Do you know what also was a tapestry of our past? Like slavery and genocide and all of that stuff. So Cool, that's setting great precedent then. Doing great. But also just like on the grounds of, oh, like abortion has always been frowned upon or looked down on in America. So blah, blah, blah. Like that's not even true. If a, if a woman in New England in the 17th or 18th centuries wanted abortion, there was absolutely no legal force to stop her. And there was barely any social or religious forces to stop her. It was just the general quote unquote shame that comes with the fact that an abortion, the women who were seeking abortion at that time were largely seen as like women of Loose. sin. Because it was usually, yeah, if it was usually unmarried women at, and I'm talking way back in colonial times, because anti-abortion organizations try to spin legal abortion as like a historical anomaly, but it, but it isn't. Midwives and medical practitioners have been performing abortions throughout world history. And in America, and when I and when I say America, I mean like the establishment of like I mean post-revolutionary war America. It was half a century before any state went out of their way to have any new formal law on the topic. Which brings me to my favorite thing to remind people always, and that is Puritans be fucking. <laughs> Puritans be fucking. Thus, Puritans be abortin. There are legal documents of the time shortly after colonization that are like rampant with re records of quote sexual offenses um some of which i'd mentioned uh that members current members of the acting supreme court uh have very strong allegations of against them uh but they're they're rampant with with records of sexual offenses and abortions that were performed thereafter also the puritans brought with them the law the common law of jolly old england which was basically just that abortion after quickening, which is a term used, it was carry, uh, used to describe like the start of fetal movements, which is typically 15 to 20 weeks after conception, that abortion after quickening wasn't allowed. But again, that was a common law in England and that was a common law in colonial America and post-revolutionary America for a very long time, but there were no written statues about it. So shrug, like it was very difficult to police and to enforce. And also at this time, there's medical literature and we have all of this. There's medical literature and, his, and newspapers that are regularly referring to herbs and medicines 
and abortion-inducing methods, since at this point, surgery was just very rare as a rule. Because abortion is also health care. Yeah. Like you said, if people be fucking, people be aborting because of the nature of complications for birth or Childbirth is whatever. insanely dangerous. Especially back then. Yes. And you know what? Kind of now in America, infant mortality rates are fucking high. Yeah, I have somewhere in my notes a, a stat of like what year I mean this for. But basically, like women on average would have about six children at this time. And they were very aware of the risks of childbirth. And so regardless of whether they didn't have any children or if they already had a few. And so there were many, many reasons that families would choose abortion because of just the risk. Like women, abortion was part of Puritan family life. Women got to choose when and if they would become mothers, regardless of whether it was their potential first child or they already had several. Skilled midwives and nurses carried out all pretty much all reproductive care at this point, including abortions. Men, like male medical practitioners, first of all, nothing was formalized really yet. But secondly, um, the gynecology, what we know as gynecology and obstetrics was very much like the men were like, let the ladies do it. Like, yeah, and as soon as the men took over, they started hacking us apart. Jesus. They also started cracking down on abortion. Yes, pre-Civil War, white men were, and I say white men because black men were not allowed to do any medicine. White men were generally not involved in any gynecological or obstetric practices. And a lot of the women performing reproductive care at this time were black or indigenous women. It wasn't until... 1821 that we see the first kind of law amending common law in the states come up about abortion and it was just that in connecticut in 1821 they formally outlaw medicinal abortion after quickening so before it was like you shouldn't do it after quickening and then they put in a formal law that said that outlawed it and then following that about 10 to 26 states uh create similar restrictions over the next couple of decades in new york in 1829 post quickening abortions were a felony and pre-quickening abortions were a misdemeanor but again there, there was really no way to police or enforce this it was a thing that was on the books but like still was very much common practice in general and also the laws themselves were very ambiguous and most of the, and the laws would punish the doctor or the person who performed the abortion and the woman but even though abortion is like legal at this time there's a community or situation that was staunchly anti-abortion we're in pretty much civil war era i'll give you one one uh, guess at what population was very anti-abortion even when it was legal slave owners <laughs> because they were paranoid that their female slaves would get an abortion and that was, that was their property and so if they were carrying a child that was further property for them so enslaved enslaved black women didn't have the freedom to control their own bodies and so abortions were legally banned for them well before they were banned for anyone else that's disgusting yeah like, I I just never, I mean, abortions as, like, men dictating women's bodies, but I never thought about it as, like, an investment. Mm-hmm. That's disgusting. Like cattle, which 
didn't stop enslaved women from having abortions, herbal remedies, and uh, I, I think they're called abortifacients uh, at this point. Because outlawing it won't stop it. What? No. And so as Cass actually already mentioned, at this point, Civil War era, physicians were largely the leading advocate for abortion criminalization laws. They were physicians at this point were also pretty exclusively white men, white cisgender men. It was basically them and the Catholic Church. And there's a lot of reasons that aren't guided by morals or God that physicians were advocating for anti-abortion legislation. One, they were dudes and just decided that they got a say in this. Uh, two, there was new medical findings at this time and that paired with jumping to conclusions was a, I don't even know if this, I don't know if I would even say that this was like a real reason, but this was like a justification that a lot of physicians gave. And that was that quickening was found to be neither more or less of a crucial development stage. So many physicians decided that if society considered it unjustifiable to terminate a pregnancy post-quickening, which again, wasn't like a clear-cut time. It was. It happens at different times for most people with uteruses between 15 and 20-ish weeks. But basically doctors were like, well, if we said that post-quickening it was incorrigible to perform to terminate a pregnancy and we've discovered that quickening doesn't isn't any more crucial to development as things that happened before then it would be just as long just as wrong to terminate before but this was more of just a justification and a large leaping of conclusions and also um just you know a very dude-centric view on the hippocratic oath that we see all the time where the fetus's life is valued uh, higher than the life of the person carrying the child or their existing family and the risks that it would put all of them at. And then the last one, and probably the strongest guiding factor for it, was competition. Like we said, gynecology and obstetrics had largely been that woman's work. And as physicians were formalizing standardizing like what it took to be part of their ranks and creating associations and whatnot. Most abortion providers, because they were women, were not members of medical societies. And the male physicians were trying to standardize shit and they wanted to cut out the healers and the midwives and anyone performing folk medicine, etc. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. Uh, like you, you, there's a straight line because also pretty much any, I mean, we've all seen Outlander. If <laughs> we're under scrutiny, they were like, please heal me. But if you heal me too good, you're rich. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's in 1857, the gynecologist Horatio Storer leads the charge of the anti-abortion laws. At this point, the American Medical Association is barely a decade old and he pushes the group to explore quote, criminal abortion. His argument was that abortion was immoral and caused derangement in women because it interfered with nature. And he lobbied for the American Medical Association to see abortion as a grave crime that lowered the profession of doctors as a whole. But still, people will find a way to get abortions and abortions were commonly practiced till mid 19th century. I mean, they still are, but there's a record that indicates that in the like mid 19th century, 15 to 35% of pregnancies were terminated with abortion during that period of time. And during this period of time, more and more 
um, married women were seeking termination. Before, it was mostly women pregnant out of wedlock, but as, as like, as we reach like the middle of the 19th century, out of 54 abortion cases that are published in medical journals between 1839 and 1880, over half of those were by, sought by married women, and over half of those married women had at least one child already. So really flipping the presumptions of who, who seeks an abortion on their heads. There's a quote, this is from Wikipedia, but I think it's an important quote, so I'm going to read it. Quote, the sense that married women were now frequently obtaining abortions worried many conservative physicians who were almost exclusively men. In the Reconstruction era, much of the blame was placed on the burgeoning women's rights movement. As when you got to blame someone, blame people you see as less than yourself. Um, <laughs> And yeah, there were there were women, if, there were feminists of that era who were anti-abortion, but they seem to have all been the ones that like are published, seem to be focused on addressing the root cause of the proliferation of abortion versus outlawing abortion. Sound familiar? Wow. Education and, and access and universal health care. Because don't you say those dirty I, words, I, Natalie? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'll wash my mouth. Bleep. Yeah. yeah, there's um, there's a quote. I think it's from there's a quote. I can't remember where it's from, but it's basically that the that abortion was an quote undesirable necessity forced upon women by the thoughtless men, um, which was kind of like a revolutionary viewpoint because the history of witchcraft trials, like w witch hunts. Uh, was just that it was a, another way that our society held women re ultimately responsible for the violence against them by men. So just similarities, just drawn, drawn some lines. In the, what's it, what was it called? The Revolution, which was Elizabeth Cady Stanton and uh, Susan B. Anthony's newspaper. They published an opinion piece. It wasn't written by them. They published an opinion piece arguing that simply passing an anti-abortion law would, quote, be only mowing off the top of the noxious weed while the root remains. No matter the motive, love or ease, or a desire to save from suffering the unborn innocent, the woman is awfully guilty who commits the deed. It will burden her conscious, conscience in life, it will burden her soul in death, but oh, thrice guilty is he who drove her to the desperation which impelled her to the crime. Some of the causes they mentioned for specifically in this article, were marital rape and the seduction of unmarried women and a general disrespect for women's rights to abstinence or refusal, refusal of consent. But physicians were louder and carried their agenda to the legislatures, not just anti-abortion laws, but anti-birth control or anti-contraceptives. In the 1860s, we finally see the criminalization of abortion accelerate. Stronger laws uh, were passed and more vigorously enforced. And of course, when that happens, women begin utilizing underground abortion services. And of course, the stigma was still higher for black women, whether they had had like already have children uh, or not. And there was this is about the time late 1800s is when the uh, Comstock law was passed, which made it illegal to deliver through the mail anything, quote, obscene, lewd, or lascivious. And it it also restricted the publishing of any information pertaining to abortion, contraception, the prevention of venereal disease, even to medical students. 
there, we couldn't publish anything for medical students that said anything about contraception or preventing pregnancy or veneer. What year was this? This was 1873. God. 24 out of 37 states at this time passed this sort of law or something similar. 1906, the food, the Pure Food and Drug Act, I'm going to get into more legal shit now. Um, the Pure Food and Drug Act make it unlawful to make, sell, or transport, uh, quote unquote, harmful, or in the terms of the, of the law, deleterious drugs or medicines. Basically, this made it more difficult for women to access safer forms of abortion, uh, like medicinal termination. By 1910, abortion is banned nationwide. It's a felony in pretty much every state. Some states still had limited allowances for protecting a woman's life in the case of rape or in the case of incest. Of course, wealthy white women were still able to skirt the law fairly easily and it largely affected people of color or any one of a lower economic standing. Again, I ask you, did this, this ban stop abortions? No. No, it did not. And that leads to, uh, in 1921, Margaret Sanger, which we should talk about her in general at some point, she founds the American Birth Control League, um, which becomes Planned Parenthood Federation of America in 1942. She said that she was inspired to teach women about contraceptives after treating a woman who died from an unsafe, self-induced abortion. By the 1930s, though, licensed physicians performed an estimated of 800,000 abortions a year. By the late 1960s, 11 states have liberalized their abortion laws, but by 1967, it is still a felony in almost every state. Before Roe, abortion was already legal in several states. It was fully illegal in 30, and it would surprise you. Some of the states that it was illegal in today would probably surprise you. Like, I was surprised to see Illinois. It was illegal? Yeah, it was illegal in Illinois. But basically, what if you didn't know, the decision in Roe imposed a federally mandated framework for state legislation on the subject. It basically guaranteed the right of a woman to access abortion, but it did not guarantee access. Access was, is still a huge issue because, again, universal health care. It just established a, a more standard framework, like a minimal period during which abortion is illegal, fewer restrictions throughout. The Roe v. Wade decision came out in, on January 22nd, 1973. There was another similar decision released that same day. That was Doe v. Bolton, which overturned the abortion law of Georgia specifically. The decision, the decision of Doe v. Bolton and the decision of Roe v. Wade essentially invalidated most of the remaining restrictions in Georgia, which that's 1973, and we talk about Roe v. Wade all the time, and we talk about what a precedent it set. But like a lot of, at the state level and federally, a lot of anti-abortion regu like regulations and legislation has passed despite Roe v. Wade, like the Hyde Amendment, which is the amendment that bars uh, federal Medicaid dollars from being used to cover abortions, which heavily restricts the reproductive freedom of uh, BIPOC individuals with uteruses because of systemic racism and the lack of economic parity in our country. It was further modified in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, 
which of course the Supreme Court right now is like got their eyes on. Um, that was a more complicated decision. Roe v. Wade passed in a 7-2 decision. Planned Parenthood versus, Kay- versus Casey had, it was a plurality opinion and it upheld the rights of Roe. Casey basically threw out Roe's trimester framework in favor of a more specific viability analysis, which allowed states to implement abortion restrictions. And they also made it official that abortion restrictions that were purposefully creating obstacles for women seeking the abortion of a non-viable fetus were unconstitutional. You can't just create restrictions willy-nilly. You can't filibuster her uterus. Yeah, you can't be a dick just to be a dick. Although you probably have a dick if you're doing it. That case, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey arose from a challenge to five provisions of the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act of 1982, which among other things stipulated a waiting period that you had to give uh, your spouse notice um, and that you had to have parental consent if you were a minor, among other things. And in the end, actually, that decision preserved for four out of five of those provisions, but it did invalidate the requirement of spousal notification. 2003, we criminalize certain safe procedures in the second trimester. Notice how I said safe. Let's criminalize safe procedures. Let's criminalize healthcare. Basically, Puritans be fucking, Puritans be abortin'. Abortion is part of the history and tradition, Justice Alito, of our country and most others. And and most of the abortion restrictions that we know now are quote unquote modern problems. From 1973 to 2021, states enacted 1,336 abortion restrictions. 44% of those abortion restrictions were in the last decade. So we've made things worse because that's what we're very good at doing because we decided about a decade to three decades ago that we had the right to police people with uteruses' bodies. And it's all about policing because, like you said, the founding of colonial America, no one cared, no one talked about it. It was being done. It was being done safely. And it wasn't until guys were like, hey, we're not included in this. Let's be involved and make up rules. And the more they want, uh, the more they feel left out, the more rules they're trying to make. You can draw a straight line from men standardizing medicine and deciding that medicine was their turf to pretty much all abortion restrictions. I thought you were just going to say all just problems. <laughs> I have two more stats for you. Give me a stat. I mean, I love a fact and a stat. I just don't know how to get there. <laughs> so in 2021 alone, states enacted 108 abortion bans and restrictions, which is a record number in any one year since 1973 when Roe made them all go, oh shit, we have to do this. Our, we have to like have our own things. And at least 60% of Americans polled in the last week and this is at least because depending on the publication and obviously depending on their samples the numbers vary from like 80 percent to 60 percent so i say at least 60 percent of americans don't think that roe v wade should have been overturned so i saw a graph breaking down demographics men women you know white black christian evangelical and like the only like long bars on the bar graph for think over Roe v. Wade should be overturned were white, 
evangelical and men. <sighs> Consequences of unelected people's uh, actions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm listening to a podcast on the history of Rome, and it's it's we're getting into the empirical shit, the downfall, the decline, and I'm like, oh, this is no longer escapist. This is looking oddly familiar. <sighs> Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. We're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1516. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. Let's talk about gay people. You say that, and I get excited to talk about gay to talk about gay people. But I know the lens through which I'm going to talk about some good things. I'm going to talk about some good things. I'm I'm starting off with something that I know you will love. Um, I'm going to talk about something that will just. <laughs> I've been saying <laughs> whatever tickles your tits lately, and I'm I need to stop saying that. So I was like, it's going to tickle our tits, and then um, I'm going to kind of wrap up with something that's very close to me. First of all, listeners, I want you all to know that being gay is a choice. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I keep saying that like sarcastically and some people are like, uh, and I need to stop doing that because outside of my circle, it doesn't read well. I also need to stop singing a lesbian. I no problem with that. A friend of mine got married and I was talking to one of her friends who lives in Minnesota and she's like, oh, me and my husband just bought a house. Um, these two women, you know, they live together there for like 60 years together. So the paint's all old. And I was like, oh, my God, lesbians. And she's like, yeah, we're in a really progressive neighborhood. So and I go to my friend Scotty. I was like, oh, my God, she doesn't know I'm gay. She thinks I'm a bigot. Fuck. <laughs> yes. Not lesbians. Yes. Friends and roommates. <laughs> Me and my roommate. Historically. Um, historically, yes. No, it's not a choice. It, it's not um, fun sometimes to be uh, marginalized. <laughs> Go figure. Turns out. It's super trendy, though. Anyway, back on track. Um, this is a quote from Wikipedia, the whatever. The gay liberation movement is a social and political movement of the late 1960s through the mid-1980s that urged lesbians and gay men to engage in radical, direct action and to counter societal shame with gay pride. I wanted to start off with that because so much of closeted gay people, of demonizing, criminalizing gay people is so rooted in shame. And the same with what you're talking about with abortion. Even when there are no laws around it, we police through shame. And I think this emphasis on conservatives, when back in the days when Roe v. Wade was alive and well, and they couldn't legally do anything to us, they used shame. And they leaned into that so hard that 
people started just allowing bad things to happen. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. But radical direct action with gay pride, which I think is pretty cool. Also, Natalie. Yes. Did you know that pride is an acronym? Oh, I did, but I couldn't tell you what it means. I think I did know that, but I forgot or I didn't know or I did. It stands for... Progressive, radical. Yeah. What What do you think? Uh, Pro- progressive, radical. Yeah, I want to say independence because that's the only I word I can think of in my brain hole right now. Dicks, effervescence. That. Wow, you nailed it, Nat. <laughs> but that wouldn't all fit on a T-shirt. Neither would personal rights in defense and education. That is a much better acronym than mine. Also, I love that the word education is in there. Yes. Like, it's it's not like, you know, protection, personal belief, gay, 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 gay. It's, we just want personal rights, and we want to educate people on how to protect those rights. Wow, it's fun that education is kind of part of both of our topics today. Yeah, being educated is is important. So I'm talking about gay rights in the United States. And Natalie, I'm about to tickle your tits. It feels so uncomfortable, but I love saying it. (laughs) And I'm going to talk to you about a man named Henry Gerber. Um, Have you ever heard of him? Of of Gerber baby face? No, not at all. The very first documented gay rights organization in the United States. What year do you think it was founded? 18... 57. Oh, no, no, way later than that. Yeah, I was, I, my, my brain went, oh, it's got to be later than you think it is. And then yeah. I, like, that's what she wants you to think. <laughs> and then I 1924. Oh, I was going to, otherwise I was going to say like 1930s. Yeah, that shocked me. I thought it would be a lot later because we know about so much of the women's lib and gay rights movements in the 60s and 70s. But the first legalized charter for a gay rights organization founded in 1924 by Henry Gerber in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. Um, Henry Gerber was born in Bavaria, which was empirical Germany. And he moved to Chicago because there was his family moved there. There was a large German speaking population. He was gay. Um, he felt very attacked. He was not able to be uh, authentically himself. He was actually interned during World War One, German internment, which, I mean, didn't, it makes sense. We love to intern people. Um, but he said, they gave me three, three meals a day. I'm like, oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. Um, he then... He went overseas and he fought for the German Alliance, which was Germans fighting for America, essentially. He was stationed in Berlin and he realized he discovered this like thriving gay subculture in Berlin, how it was it was fairly open. There were, you know, they called them homophile magazines, you know, gay magazines, gay publications. Uh, There was a nightlife. There was culture surrounding it it was a gay old time he had zines and club culture yes yes and he was like oh my 
this is awesome. I want this. So he goes back home, and uh, there were a few German doctors, philosophers, who he followed very closely, who were kind of leading this movement. Um, he was really focused on the medical aspect of it and learning more about it, not just, you know, because at the time, also, people thought it was you were uh, feeble-minded or something. Um, so he was really interested in just learning more about the psychology of it, the physiology of it, um, very rooted in education. So they had a, I believe it's called Bund der Menschenkraft, is basically directly translated to the Society for Human Rights in English, which is what he called his publication, the Society for Human Rights. They had an organization, they got it um, established as a nonprofit. The blurb for it to get it chartered was kind of vague, so it got passed as a nonprofit. They started publishing. Gerber went on as the secretary of the organization and actually the president in 1924 of the first American gay rights organization was a black gay clergyman because black gay people be leading the charge be always everything you know month of june which is when we're recording and pride uh our you know attention is turned to marsha p johnson now more often because we're you know recognizing the fact that transgender women started the movement that it is a intersectional movement um and not centering cis white queer people which is great so i just wanted to give a shout out to john t graves shout out john t graves a boy so yeah so they uh they were publishing um articles for a few months uh a lot of majority of the members were starting to get arrested so it, sh it shut down after only a few months can I perpetuate um, uh, the gay stereotype that all gay men know each other? Yes. Um, and just say Chicago in the 1920s. I wonder if I wonder if Gerber knew Thomas Lyle Williams, founder of Maybelline. <laughs> another, Probably another powerful gay young gay man in Chicago. A very powerful young gay man. A like a fabulous young gay man. Uh, well, at that point, actually, he'd be like in his he'd be in his like late 30s. In his prime? I think we need to get to the bottom of this. Or 1920s Chicago gay scene fan fiction. <laughs> Go grab the mystery machine. We're, we're getting this mystery solved. So, again, I'm jumping around. That was the first uh, gay rights organization in the United States. Uh, the first known lesbian rights organization that was uh, specifically just for gay women was formed in San Francisco, San Francisco, and it's called the Daughters of Bilitis, Bilitis, Bilitis. Uh, they hosted, it was a private social club. A lot of lesbian bars were getting raided by police. This was founded in 1955. So a lot of the, the Red Scare, McCarthyism, homosexuality was used as a a form of blackmail. If you wanted to get someone in trouble, you just kind of, find out if they're gay or not all gay people were lost all of their federal and state jobs because it was a risk in case 
something came up and then you got in trouble or whatever. So not a good time to be a gay, not a good time to be a lesbian who just wanted to dance. So they, these two couples started their own society where they would just get together, where they could, they said that the main focus of it or one of the priorities was they just want to dance because women can't dance together out, you know, in public or it's, or the, or these bars were getting raided and it's just so sweet and sad. And I can say as a lesbian in a, in a relationship, I love dancing. I love slow dancing and it's really awkward. It's really uncomfortable in certain situations and uh, I hate it. Because I love dance. I love dancing with my girlfriend. Gross. Ew. Disgusting. Ew. Feelings. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this society was called Doc- Daughters of Bilitis. What is, what the fuck is Bilitis, Cass? Well, this was their little secret tongue-in-cheek name because Bilitis was the name given to a fictional lesbian contemporary of Sappho by French poet Pierre-Louis in his 1894 work, The Songs of Bilitis, in which Bilitis lived on the Isle of Lesbos alongside Sappho. Get it. Shout out to our friends at Sweet Bitter Podcast. Y'all have, I don't know, a bonus episode that you got to do on this. The name was chosen for its obscurity. (laughs) Bilitis is just like... Is just well because at that time people would refer like would refer to women as being like friends of Sappho or Sapphic or whatever. Yeah, for men it was like yeah, um, sodomizer, and for women it was Sapphic. It was like a it was derogatory. Yeah, so the fact that they were they chose a thing that was more obscure but just adjacent to it. That's basically bring just gonna bring it back to basically fan fiction about Sappho. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was the first known um, documented uh, lesbian rights organization. There is a funny quote: they were, they did get nonprofit status, just like Society for Human Rights. Can you imagine the dollar, daughters of Bilitis, and then like the daughters of the American Revolution, just like having tea. So that's that's why they did daughters of. That's so as- fucking smart. As kind of like a nod and a fuck you to like Daughters of the Revolution, Daughters of Bilitis. I'm like, fuck yes. They they had a motto that was qui vive. It was French for on alert. They would wear these pins um, that had a certain color and a certain saying because they wanted to recruit more people, but they also like didn't want to talk about it because they didn't they didn't want to get raided. Like they didn't want all this stuff. So their their team motto was on alert. How sad is that? That's rough and anxiety inducing. They filed for a nonprofit uh, corporation status in 1957 and they got it. And Phyllis Lyon, who is one of the founders, said she wrote a description so vague it could have been a charter for a cat raising club. <laughs> Which feels very, very lesbianic. <laughs> so, yes, uh, I. I mean, I didn't learn a lot about um, history of gay rights because I went to Catholic school, but also I don't think anyone really learned about it. Um, I feel like gay men are centered in the history of gay rights. Lesbians are kind of a 
they're kind of they're kind of used as the butt of a joke for a lot of things, mm-hmm. and especially going in tandem with the li- women's liberation movement. It's it's you don't either hear as much about them, or they're kind of like oh they're really aggressive, or they're the butt of a joke. I feel like in school the most I would have gotten about lesbian history would have been a footnote of a footnote yeah. in the conversation around women entering like re-entering the workforce during world war ii and more and more women like taking roles and jobs in society that were traditionally at that point uh even if historically they were non-gendered roles uh but at that point historic like traditionally considered male roles and then Mm. it would be like a footnote of that of basically being like we see more and more women and households with no men and multiple women living together. No reason, nothing's happening. And because they didn't have a man and they couldn't afford, yeah, so they were just roommates. It was definitely because all of the men were at war and there were no men. <laughs> there were zero men, so the women had to cohabitate. Other than that, it would be like, I can't even think, I cannot even think of in like the civil rights movement section of school a le- like a lesbian topic being mentioned it was it was basically yeah. like stonewall harvey milk the end yeah and so yeah so hearing about this the you know the first lesbian organization it was it's nice to see kind of some of the history um and even in the past few years black trans women are being centered more trans non-binary bipoc people realizing that gay history and gay rights and the history of gay rights is not white cis centered and it's not it is actually largely not like most of the advancements yeah continued fight has been led by people of color and it's it's interesting because this organization the daughters of Bilitis, they they heavily heavily push the idea of assimilation so the butch femme they said if you're butch try to dress more feminine try to speak more like they really were going out of the notion of if we look non-threatening if they realize we're just like everyone else maybe they'll accept us and i think a lot of the centering of white cis gay people in the gay rights movement was was maybe that too like it's one one easier way to pass through society yeah and uh reading about this organization they they went way too hard there was an instance of a butch lesbian who never never wore dresses she was always dressed in men's clothing and they finally got her in a dress and they were all so excited it was this big crowning achievement and i'm like no yeah so once it hit like the 60s they were like oh maybe this is not the way to go and they decided they wanted to take a more radical approach um and i'm like good (laughs) good my favorite um my friend Bonnie has my one of my favorite items to wear to a gay bar or to a pride event, and it's just a hat that just says straight looking, and I'm like, I love it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. We're, we're, not, like, we're not as focused and centered on and obsessed with quote-unquote passing yeah. anymore as a 
healthy development. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so now I'm just jumping around. Um, uh, Maryland became the first state to ban same-sex marriage in 1973. Wait, question. Before yes. that, it, it's not actually, it doesn't actually say anywhere, no. It's not, ex is it explicitly stated in, like, Correct. legislature? Okay. Correct. There was, I don't know when it was legally criminalized, criminalized. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association diagnosed homosexu homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance. That got overturned in 1973. It was removed from its list of mental disorders, um, which, hey, that's a win. And then we have, starting in the 70s, mid-70s, we have a slew of openly gay candidates um, running and getting elected for office in various levels we've got don't ask don't tell I, I mean it's just i'm bouncing around here mm -hmm. so yeah so there's a there's a lot of uh setbacks there's a lot of push forwards um marriage got legalized officially in all 50 states during obama's presidency i want to kind of end with something that's kind of close to my heart a gentleman by the name of zach walls um, hey, I want to I thought you were going to propose to me. The what? I thought you were going to propose to me and that was going to be like your high note that you were ending on. Was that like... Oh, shit. Going? I'm saving that for my discovery at the end. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> later. We can be roommates later. <laughs> I can't wait to just be roommates with you. <laughs> so Zach Walls, uh, he is currently a state senator in Iowa in... In 2011, Iowa was ever all the states were kind of going through their gay marriage rights. Do they want to ban it? Do they want to amend their constitutions? Uh, so there were a bunch of hearings to see if they would ban civil unions. Zach Walls was, I believe, 18 or 19. He was a college student and he went before the house with a statement. He has two. He has two moms and he just gave this beautiful speech. I almost want to read the whole thing to you, but we'll post it on our social media. He ends it by saying, In my 19 years, not once have I ever been confronted by an individual who realized independently that I was raised by a gay couple. And you know why? Because the sexual orientation of my parents has had zero effect on the content of my character. It was a beautiful speech. Iowa did not ban uh, civil unions. He even said in his speech, he's like, the outcome today isn't going to change my family. My family is not going to change. Their legal rights will. And yeah. And it was a moment where I was really proud of my state. I was really proud of where we were going. We've taken a backslide <laughs> as of late. So... He made that statement, and then he went on to run for for office in the state of Iowa, and he won. And he's fighting now for women's rights, gay rights, all of the th all of the rights. Because why, 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 why do people care? You mean human rights? Yes. So, um, it's it's a really beautiful speech. We'll put it on our social media. Hey, maybe we'll get Zach on the podcast. Oh, that would be Ooh. Ooh, a new goal. Yeah. So I, I skimmed and I bounced and I jumped through. There's there's too much to cover. And I wanted to kind of cover some stuff that was 
happy and exciting for me. The really... overturning of Roe v. Wade has laid the framework for gay marriage, gay rights, privacy rights in the United States to be overturned. So overturning Roe v. Wade is not just limiting medical care, it's limiting legal representation and rights for women and gay people, transgender, non-binary, everything. So many of these cases are the precedent for future cases. So there's so many rights that and and so many decisions that it's because we've overturned Roe v. Wade are at jeopardy right now that affect literally everyone. So regardless of your personal opinions, which should not affect the law and the human access to health care or the human right to marry the person you love, your personal opinions should not affect the legal rights of these things. I hate to have to say it this way, but one of these is going to affect you personally. And if that's the only way that I can get you to care about other people is by centering it on caring about yourself, which I feel like we're not preaching to the right choir because our <laughs> listeners, none of, carefully curated. none of our listeners are going to be surprised to hear most of these things coming out of our mouths. Do you know what argument I fucking hate? All of them? But, but you have a daughter. You have a mother. You have a oh, like you need to know a woman in order to care about their rights. Like, it, for some people, that's all it takes. Yeah. Until it happens to me, I don't give a shit. And not only do I not give a shit, I want to take it away from you. Ugh. Yeah. Anger. It's also it's like nonsensical on so many levels. Because also until we get to a point where like. If like until we get to like that future where we're like cloning and everything and able to viably grow an entire human being in a in a petri dish or whatever, like we're all connected <laughs> to humans and this affects all of us. And we all we were all birthed by someone with we were all carried in a uterus. And I just have. <laughs> I think we're gonna fix everything with this episode now. Yeah, this will do it. This will. <laughs> I mean, I. I came in I came in hot disproving disproving Alito's entire basis of his argument. So, well, I think we really made some strides here. Let's get you on the bench, Nat. If there's something that the judicial system and particularly the Supreme Court has been moved by before, it's definitely uh logic and evidence. What's that? No. Um Let's let's end on a high note. Let's do um, our discoveries. Normally, do them at the beginning of the episode, but we think I think we probably want to end. You should just start doing them at the end. It's like a nice little a nice little palate cleanser button. Also, yes, know that we're wrapping up. We've had so much time to make so many great discoveries. I would like to shout out. I've watched. Listen, I've read over thirty books in the last six months. I've already made my reading goal for this year. <laughs> Brag! I could recommend. Now I just want to recommend all of the historical fiction that has lesbian storylines that I've even just read this year. Like, just start naming them. I'm going to start writing. Curious, <laughs> Curious Toys uh, takes place in Chicago and has a wonderful queer gender identity side plot discovery the huntress by kate quinn which also has uh one of 
the main characters in it was one of the Night Witches. It's historical fiction. City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert has multiple queer storylines in it that are like B-plot stuff, but are just like there because that's part of the world. Just, you know, get out there and read. But I'm not here to talk about books that I've read because my discovery is a lot dumber than that. Wait, that wasn't your discovery? It wasn't my discovery. That oh, was just books that I had to mention because because we were just talking about, and because it's especially just like about the prevalence of lesbian women in history and how we don't really learn about it, but I'm very grateful to see it in a lot of historical fiction recently. My discovery is a real simple one. I was today, this very day, just mere hours ago, years old, when I realized why they have those uh, measuring tape things on the walls at like Taco Bell and like Little Caesars, you know, the one where it's the tape on the wall and it just has like the feet marked on it. And they're always like the background of it'll be like a big red block and there's like a four and that's like the four foot mark. I will post, I will show you a photo and you'll know what I'm talking about. I was today years old when I realized that those aren't for kids who are just mucking around at, at the place and are like, look, mom, I'm four foot three. Those are so that if they get robbed or if there's a crime that occurs, when they walk out the door, they're always by the door. When they walk out the door, they can get an accurate read on the height of the suspect. Shut up! Interest. And you know what made this click? When I went to 7-Eleven, and at 7-Eleven, it was literally on the, not even the door jam. It was, they had one on each door on the inside of the door. Literally, you have to walk through them. That's amazing. And it, and my brain went, oh my God. I know, okay. I know what you're talking about, Little Caesars now, too, because that's exactly what I did. And it was always next to the little tank where you drop the penny. And if you get it in the shot glass, you win something. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, this is just a kid's area for us to shut up. But so what our moms can also just... by the door, kind of? Or people oh, were yeah. stealing. Right on the penny. jam. Yeah. Yeah. I was wow. eight years old when I put that together. Wow. Is this a useful discovery for anyone? No, but I'm glad, good to know that I'm not alone. My discovery is that not 30 seconds ago, I discovered <laughs> that the tape measure on the Little Caesars, what the fuck? That's blowing my mind. So simple, so elegant. I love it. My discovery is a little more sad. I, I already knew this, but I um, witnessed it firsthand. Uh, I discovered that you, when you water plants, you shouldn't water the leaves. Um, all of my pepper plants that I have been growing since March indoors, I'm trying to become a farmer. I was so proud of myself. They were doing so well. They were flowering. We had little peppers growing, just little baby buds coming out. And I got lazy one day. And instead of pulling the hose all the way over to the base, I just kind of all on top. And there was a pestilence just for my peppers, though. So we still got cucumbers and tomatoes, but and my basil plants gone. It's it's been hard. The peppers started to disease, and then they 
got the tomato plants a little bit, so I had to cut off the leaves. Oh no! So I saved the basil. I but I cut off all of the blighted leaves, so it's just a single stalk with two little shoots. We've had to do that. Toss. We've had to do that to our lemon tree like the last two years because it's gotten like a, like bugs, and we take yeah. it outside. We basically cut it down to a stick, and I think it's never <laughs> going to come back. And then it, like, a month later, it's like. Phew. But you know what? This is a this is a lot of improvement from last year's gardening endeavor. So every very, year is a learning still, experience. I'm still very proud of you. Thank I you. think that I first, I don't think I first learned this from Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, but there is a very memorable excerpt in Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman um, about watering a plant's feet. Yeah. And not its head. And I think of that every time I'm watering plants. I fuck, I knew it too. <sighs> This, but is, now I know this is what we've it. been doing while we've been away. I've been identifying the purpose behind public signage. And I've become a flourishing farmer. Mm-hmm. Not a gardener, I'm a farmer. Oh, I'm... <laughs> My farm is one raised bed, but it is a farm nonetheless. <laughs> Go get the Ray Gun shirt, our sponsor, that says the world needs more lesbian farmers. That's me. Cass is just fulfilling a need that the world has. And we're so glad that Raygun has identified it. Go to raygunshirts.com and get that. I feel bad for not for leaving people with a lot of assigned reading and um, nothing for the folks who just prefer to watch TV. So I'd also like to do a real quick shout out to past guest Jack Loudon's Apple series, Slow Horses, came out and is already renewed through season three. Heck yeah. Um, which, I mean, like, I read the book, so, like, we could also talk about the book. But if you don't, you don't have to read the book. From As a human who is very much the book was better, it is a very strong, true adaptation of the book. Good. With some um, improvement. For more of you non-readers, go check out, I think it's a Netflix documentary called The Janes, which is about uh, abortion pre-Roe v. Wade. It's pretty fucking awful. And we're there now. We're back. We're back. Or watch this uh, sick future documentary called Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> also, for people who uh, who don't who don't want to read and maybe don't want to watch a whole thing, go to our Instagram at SharedPod, <laughs> uh, and there are just you know pictures. There are also words, but there are also just pictures. We'll post some uh, some visual aids from our topics today, as well as. As always, on our YouTube, we'll start a playlist of things that we've referenced. Um, that speech that Cass referenced, we'll be sure to post like the whole clip there for sure. And just follow us and, and stuff uh, at SharedPod on Instagram and Twitter. We love to hear from you. You can send questions, corrections, or suggestions to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can fill out the fancy form on our web website at sharedhistorypodcast.com. Because we have a website. You can do that as well. Guys, we've missed you so much. So we'd love to hear from you. The folks who have DM'd us while we've been away and been like, when are you coming back? Have made us happy, sad in the best way. We're so happy to be back. We're, like I said, back and bitter than ever. <laughs> we promise that not all of our episodes will be tirades but actually i can't make that promise <laughs> until next time share you later, later.